Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. In response to population growth and climate change, eco-cities are on the rise across the world. Cities that are committed to producing renewable energy resources and removing carbon waste. Cache Valley resident and longtime sustainable living activist Jim Goodwin joins us to talk about the challenges Cache Valley faces as the valley grows and seeks cleaner energy alternatives. Goodwin worked in community and economic development in rural communities across the West and co-founded the 100% volunteer group, the Intermountain Bioneers, an offshoot of the Bioneers organization that fosters and hosts conferences centered on sustainable living practices. I first joined an environmental group in 1978, and it happened to be a a solar group that I was working with in uh, Northern California, where I lived uh, at that time. And I guess as I uh, was raising kids and growing older, I was became increasingly interested in why society, humanity, was not paying enough attention to the signs that Mother Nature was giving us, that we weren't uh, going about living our lives uh, in a sustainable manner. And when I say sustainable, that means a sustainable environment, of course, a healthy environment, and sustainable economy, because if business doesn't go along with it, nothing's going to happen anyway. So we need to green business. And then, of course, you have to treat people right, um, and that means social equity and social justice. So I kind of started down that path, and I've been on several boards and work with several groups uh, over the past three and a half decades or so, and uh, have enjoyed it very much. What are the major challenges facing Cache Valley in terms of utilizing renewables and growth? Cache Valley is a beautiful place, snow-capped mountains surrounding a wonderful valley floor, and Cache County currently has about 115,000 people. And the really big challenge ahead for Cache County and the 17 communities that live in Cache County is uh, population growth because most people would say that by 2030, 2035, that the population is going to double, which is uh, unbelievable. So, you know, think of a Cache Valley with 230,000 people. Um, that's kind of startling. Cache County uh, rightly thinks of itself as a pretty agricultural place, which it is. But one of the things that everybody talks about that they know is happening is the farm and ranch land and critical vistas. Those places are disappearing. So as development uh, keeps moving, um, how are we going to deal with keeping farmland and ranch land? If you would ask most Cache Valley residents, that's something that they greatly enjoy. They love those peaceful vistas looking over working farms and ranches. And uh, little by little by little, it's disappearing. So how to, how to deal with that? And then, of course, Cache County is uh, infamous a few times a year with its air quality, uh, which is hard to believe when you drive in a beautiful place like this. It's hard to believe that's so. But uh, as we all know, once or twice or three times a year, the county in Logan has the dirtiest air in the nation, you know, for a day or two, which is really startling. 
So we have a natural bowl that we live in, which is creates uh, an environment where the air doesn't move out very quickly, sometimes when we have inversions. And when we increase population, uh, that's simply going to mean that much more uh, pollution from cars and industry going into the uh, atmosphere here. So we have a big problem with how to deal with uh, red air days. And I think one of the one of the issues that people are mistaken on when they think of red air days, sometimes people will say, oh, gee, we only have five or six or nine of those each year. So while that's not good, the rest of the year, uh, the air is just fine and everything's perfect. However, if you talk to medical people about what happens with uh, the particulate matter, the PM 2.5 that we all read about, um, it doesn't affect the body just for one day. Many people would say that the effects can be measured in the body for up to 30 days after the red air incident uh, day. So there are a lot of health issues involved with uh, air quality that really are not looked at accurately but uh, need to be. So those are great challenges for Cache County. And let me add also one of the uh, overarching uh, difficulties that we're all seeing now is snowmelt. We here in Cache Valley have these beautiful mountains around us with lots of snow. Uh, we're currently kind of in a semi-drought condition, and if we have several years where the snowmelt is not very good, obviously that affects agriculture and how much irrigation they can use. So snow melting in mountains, hotter temperature, you know, ultimately goes back to uh, climate change. And uh, so that's a that's a big problem for everybody, but certainly for farmers and ranchers here in Cache Valley and farmers and ranches everywhere in Northern California where most of the water comes from the Sierras, the, the fresh water. It's a problem everywhere. What are your thoughts on climate change and what do we need to do? And what do we need to start paying attention to? Well, one of the interesting things about climate uh, climate change is how attitudes uh, have kind of changed. When I say attitudes, uh, public attitudes, there's been an incredible attack on mainstream science by certain individuals and groups. And, you know, it's very concerning, and it's not heading us in the right direction. You know, the so-called climate deniers, and if you look at who those people are, those legislators and others, they're principally people from fossil fuel producing states. So if you use the old saying, follow the money, that's usually where you get to the truth of the matter. So those people say there isn't any climate change, or if it is, it's a natural thing and it's not caused by human beings. But that does not appear to be the case when you have 97% of the world's meteorological scientists saying that global warming is caused by human beings either a little bit or a lot. And every meteorological organization in the world um, says the same thing, says that's true. So you would think that scientists are somehow worldwide forming together to have a cabal that uh, 
you know, somehow puts down business or is against uh, fossil fuels. I think we all know scientists, and I know several, and I'm sure all of our listeners do as well. I'm completely unaware of any group of scientists that is out to uh, blast the fossil fuel industry. That's just simply not the case. Scientists do what they do. They do research. They report it, and that's that. But, of course, others try to deny uh, the work that they do and say that it's uh, not accurate, but it is accurate. Even the computer models that they've used uh, years ago, five years ago, that were fairly conservative, now have proved to have undershot the mark as to where we really are. So it kind of gets down to something that we all have to deal with, and fair enough that we do, and that is jobs. And jobs are incredibly important, and we're going to have to have a shift in our world, in our country, in our states and counties as to how we earn our money. It has to be in a more sustainable manner. And certainly energy is one of those in which it has to, we have to learn how to produce cleaner energy in a cost-effective way um, so that we don't affect our environment so much. So when I look at fossil fuel uh, companies, particularly oil and gas, you know, if you step back and look at the engineering uh, that they use, it's utterly fantastic. The work that they do is is just amazing. You know, drilling in the North Sea, you know, two or three miles below the ocean, that's unbelievable. Um, with natural gas, figuring out how to drill down several thousand feet and then drill horizontally, that's amazing. So we have wonderful technology capabilities in this country and in in our country and in our world. And we kind of have to get the ship pointed in the direction of using that uh, people power to uh, create greener energy and more sustainable industries. And we can do it. It's just all a matter of political will. And one of the difficulties we have in this country is, of course, the fossil fuel companies are the most profitable companies in the world. In their mind, they have the perfect uh, business model. Um, their future is still in the ground, so you bet they're going to keep uh, they're going to keep digging and drilling. But we need to we need to turn that around and have our leaders. I use that in quotes. Sometimes I wonder if they are have our leaders start to direct the uh, ship of state towards renewable energy. Unfortunately, with the influx of immense amounts of money that go into uh, national and state political campaigns. It's all lobbying and it's all money. And that's, uh, you know, that's very unfortunate. That's going to be a hard thing to turn around. Some of the Supreme Court cases have really made it difficult to deal with that. But that's, that's something we have to do, simply have to do and we have to have leaders who are willing to uh, lead and not be beholding to uh, lobbyists only. A lot of the recent weather-related catastrophes like Sandy, scientists are now coming out and saying are a result of human-induced climate change. And much of the world's infrastructure is based on fossil fuels, and economies are driven by it. So trying to change that is a giant undertaking. Well, again, that's why I think that you know that the technology, the answers, are out are all out there. I mean, technologically speaking, we know what to do. 
what we don't have is the political will at the moment as a, as a country, and certainly we don't have the political will in the legislatures around the country and in Washington, D.C., and that makes it uh, very difficult. It's ironic that, you know, we have a Congress where, where people say the approval rate of Congress is 11 or 12 percent, you know, the lowest it's ever been, yet in all the counties and in, in regions around the United States, about 97 percent of the uh, incumbents are sent back. So it's kind of confusing when we think they're so bad, yet we send them back to Congress. So how does, how does that work? Could you talk about your thoughts on the oil and gas boom in Utah, especially in eastern Utah and the Uinta Basin? And I understand many of the Logan City vehicles and buses are running on natural gas. Right. If you could talk about your, your thoughts on that industry. One of the groups that I'm enjoying working with uh, at the moment is called in here in Logan, for the city of Logan, is called the Renewable Energy and Conservation Advisory Board. And we are charged with... Uh, coming up with renewable energy ideas and possibilities for the city of Logan. The city of Logan has its own light and power company. And so we're doing our best to uh, promote renewable energy. And when I say renewable energy, wind and solar, geothermal, of course, since we're here in the mountains, we have lots of uh, hydro. We have a lot of possibilities. And one reason we're working hard to interest our city council and our mayor in renewables is when cities go forward and their utility companies go forward and buy power, um, they buy, they have long-term contracts, you know, for 5, 10, 20 years or longer. So it's important to try to get renewables, uh, renewables in place. And you just hate to see, uh, you know, a 10 or 20 year coal contract go out because then that's it. That's the, that's the deal for that amount of energy that they're buying. And you're, you know, you're out of that one, you know, light and power companies, particularly municipal light and power companies, their job is to keep the lights on at the lowest possible cost. So that's a, that's a big hurdle to get over. Of course, cost can mean many things, not just the cost per kilowatt hour, but what is the cost to the community? I mean, some of those intangible things, health of the community, health of the region, health of the state, all of those things come into play. And that's uh, difficult. That's a challenge, particularly for politicians, to work that back into the cost per kilowatt hour of uh, energy. But it's something that has to be done. Now, when we say wind and solar, one of the things that always uh, comes up in uh, that renewable energy is that it's not baseline energy. In other words, uh, you can't count on it 100% of the time. If the sun isn't shining, the solar's not producing, and the wind, the wind isn't blowing, then there is no energy coming out of there. Geothermal is a lot steadier, all that can, although that can have hiccups as well. So that's always brought up, but it's kind of under the context of... Uh, thinking of solar panels being on homes, which which is a fine idea. But what's really happening in the larger market is in Southern California, Arizona, um, New Mexico, 
uh, I'm sure a lot of people have seen these projects where thousands and thousands of solar panels are going in or hundreds of wind turbines. And they're in different parts of the uh, country, so they're selling all that energy back into the grid. So that kind of helps from a baseline standpoint is that you're not just looking at one wind farm in Wyoming and, you know, one uh, photovoltaic array in Southern California. That's not how it's working. That's uh, helping us out a lot. Utah is, you know, if you've ever read about boom and bust in energy, um, when it's great, it's great. When it's not, um, poor communities are left uh, holding the bag. Uh, somebody was telling me the other day in North Dakota where they're going crazy with uh, oil and gas um, production is that truck drivers are now earning about $75,000 a year, and that's that's truck drivers. So that's that's quite a money incentive, to say the least, and it's starting in uh, eastern Utah in the, in the Uinta Basin area. The same things are starting to happen there. Ironically... Ozone readings are higher in those areas where they're putting in lots of gas wells. And, of course, the one of the big uh, buzzwords that everybody's talking about now with natural gas is hydraulic uh, fracturing or fracking, you know, where one drills thousands of feet down and then starts drilling uh, horizontally and injects uh, fluids with lots of different chemicals in it uh, at high pressure into the rocks, and it makes them expand and frack to open up and releases the gas, and out comes the gas. There is concern uh, many places that what those chemicals are, and lots of times energy companies won't say what those chemicals are for proprietary reasons. There's concern about where does that, where does that go? Where do those chemicals go? And there is real concern that it uh, can get into the groundwater. Now, that's a debatable thing in certain areas. In some areas, I'm sure it's true. In some areas, I'm sure it's not. Groundwater is usually two or 3,000 feet at the most below. Um, the fracking goes on 8,000, 9,000 feet below. So there's some question as to as to whether it really gets into the groundwater or how soon does it get into the groundwater. But one thing that is definitely happening that is not good is when they drill the wells, they have difficulty containing the methane. And methane is a gas that is 20 times more powerful in the environment than CO2 is. So if you have uh, one unit of methane, it equals 20 units of CO2 going into the environment. So it's a big, big headache. And some would say, industry says, oh, maybe 2 or 3% methane gets out. Um, many others would say 7 to 12% methane gets out. So that's a big problem as to how to deal with that. And sometimes when you add in all of this as to Natural gas is the cleanest way to go. President Obama supported it. Uh, many people have supported it. Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, we really haven't measured what the effect of this methane going into the environment is as compared to driving your car with uh, oil. So it's, it's, it's a little hard to say. And then also uh, just starting in eastern Utah, same, that same area, um, is going to be tar sands, 
are going to start being mined. In tar sands is where there is uh, soil and sand and clay and dirt, where there's uh, so-called bituminous uh, sands, which when you take it out and hold it in your hand, it looks like tar. So that's where the term tar sands comes in. And that's mined right off the top. So it's open-air mining. If you've ever taken a look at how the land looks afterwards, um, you know, just just uh, Google up in Alberta, Canada, and you can see how that looks. Not a pretty sight at all. But along with the, the scenery, the difficulty is, is this dirtiest of all fossil fuels is going to be trucked to Salt Lake City, where there are two refineries that are going to be refining it. And and Salt Lake City, as most people know, is experiencing really big problems with uh, air quality. So adding in two refineries that are going to start uh, refining the dirtiest oil uh, in the world, that's pretty problematic as to how that's going to affect the Salt Lake area, along with continued population growth. If you're refining more, if you're driving more cars, if Kennecott Copper is mining more, you increase the population by three or four or 500,000. Pretty easy to figure out what's going to happen. And air quality is getting difficult. We're even here in Cache Valley. I've heard people say, I'm not so sure I want to live here anymore. And also when we talk to Chamber of Commerce people, sometimes they'll have people say, well, it's a it's an interesting place, but uh, that air quality doesn't look so good to us, and I'm not sure I want to raise my family there and have my children breathe it for 20 years until they go off to work or college. So, you know, it's going to start affecting business, and when that happens, then uh, we'll we'll definitely see some changes. We're just about out of time, and I wanted to ask about your interest in social justice issues and how those can be married with sustainable entrepreneurism and addressing climate change. One of the things that interested me about sustainability, I'd, I'd been involved with environmental things, primarily renewable energy, and then someone started talking to me, and this was back in Northern California, started talking to me about sustainability, and sustainability means uh, uh, sustainable, uh, healthy uh, environment and a strong economy that's... Uh, green, so it's not polluting and ruining the environment, and social equity and social justice. And uh, what I've found that if you ask people what sustainability means, it's one of those words that's bandied about everywhere. And if you ask the average person uh, in the street what sustainability means, um, if they have an answer, they're, they're probably going to say it has something to do with the environment. So that's true, but if you don't have sustainable business, if business doesn't come along with the concept of having a a clean environment, healthy air, healthy water, healthy soil, all of those things, um, it's going to be very difficult to change anything. And the one thing that's almost always forgotten, which is equally important, is social justice, social equity, which really means uh, treating people right. You know, why do poor people have to live next to the toxic waste dump? Um, Why are wages the way they are? Why are people hiring uh, workers for 
35 hours a week, but they won't go to 40 hours so that they don't have to pay medical and and other uh, benefits like that. We have to treat people right. We have to be fair. We have to give people a sense that fairness is at play, and it's just not money uh, driving everything. So that's, that's incredibly important, and it's usually forgotten. That was Jim Goodwin. For more information... I would urge everybody to look at a great website. It's simply Bioneers.org, and Bioneers is like Pioneers, except with a B, B-I-O-N-E-E-R-S, Bioneers.org. Take a look at that website. Um, it's tremendous. You'll learn a lot. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. 